everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Foster Gamble, president and co-founder of Clear Compass Media, and the creator and host for an amazing new movie called Thrive. It's an unconventional documentary that lifts the veil on what's really going on in our world by following the money upstream and uncovering the global consolidation of power in nearly every aspect of our lives. Foster Gamble is a direct descendant of the late James Gamble, the soap maker and founder of Procter & Gamble, and his childhood in Cincinnati was one of position and privilege. He attended elite private schools and Princeton University, and he was groomed to be a leader in the establishment, but he chose a different path. As a young boy, Foster Gamble had a vision where he glimpsed what he perceived to be the universe's fundamental energy pattern. This experience led him to envision a universal energy source that could serve the world. And over the next 35 years, he immersed himself in science and in the exploration of consciousness and human potential. And he realized that both sets of skills would be needed to navigate the challenges threatening our very survival. Thrive represents the convergence of these two paths and puts into sharp relief the true reality of our existence in the 21st century. So I am so honored to welcome Foster Gamble. Welcome, Foster. Thank thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, watching the film was a riveting experience, and I am awestruck by all the effort behind it. Much of the information was material that I knew, but to have it all laid out in such a logical sequence and then to be able to see how all the dots are connected, well, that was a sobering experience. (laughs) Thank you. It was a really, uh, one of our major challenges was uh, to put so much information in such a short amount of time. And that, frankly, was my major concern as to whether or not it would work. And many people advised us to, you know, just pick one of those topics and make a documentary out of it, you know, rather than a dozen of them. And But uh, we really felt, my wife Kimberly and I, uh, really felt like our main mission was to connect the dots in a way that hadn't been done before in one uh, piece of media so that people could, in a brief sitting, actually get the coherence because uh, many of the topics on their own, whether it's UFOs or free energy or conspiracy or even the the deeper aspects of liberty, can sound so bizarre that it can be sort of socially ostracizing in most situations. But when the pieces are tied together, another story emerges which is so much more coherent and appeals to common sense way beyond what we're being told by the corporate media. And I'm happy to say that we're just getting thousands of letters from all over the world thanking us for exactly that aspect. So we're relieved that that worked. You, you couldn't be more right because I've, you know, being in the business we are, I've seen many, many movies and read many books, each one uh, covering one or, or, or a few aspects. But to have it all tied together, as you say, is um, so convincing. And uh, I loved what you said at one point. You said, I could be wrong, but what if I'm not? <laughs> now, well, the, the, the film is a story of a personal journey. 
and I relate a lot of facts that I found, and those are all uh, confirmed by independent third-party sources and all put up on the Internet to, so that we don't have to spend a lot of time arguing over whether or not the Federal Reserve is really federal and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but I, it, I think it's really important also to realize that we each interpret what we observe in a different way. So I was sharing my story of discovery uh, because many of the topics were so new to me at different times. I never set out to explore UFOs or even uh, free energy. Just one, one question led naturally to the next, and this uh, other uh, understanding began to emerge. But I want to be very clear to people that, that um, I'm relating a certain number of facts and then my interpretation of them, and I invite people to really entertain our story but not to believe it. I don't want anybody just uh, taking on a new belief system unquestioned. I'm, we're really interested in helping to promote critical thinking. So we spent three years building, building a website where you can go as deeply as you want in following up on further information so that uh, ultimately you get a critical mass of solid information so that you can really shape your own opinion that makes most sense to you of what's really going on and therefore what can we do about it? Well, we're going to go into your website and the whole Thrive movement uh, towards the end of the interview. But why don't we start with laying out at least some of the highlights of your documentary. You start by pointing out the chasm between the natural order, which is for life to thrive, and the fact that the majority of the people on the planet are barely surviving. That's why you called it Thrive. That was the biggest dilemma in, in my life, is just the people that I know, for the most part, are so caring. I mean, if you're in trouble, they'll give you the shirt off your back. The, you know, you see in these various uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and so forth, you just see the goodness of humanity just shine. And with all of the technological capabilities that we have now and means of accessing different resources and so forth, I just could not figure out, as I was graduating from college, uh, quite a while ago now, back in 1970, and looking around me and seeing that we were at the risk of a nuclear holocaust, we were invading Cambodia for no apparent reason that, that I could understand, um, and we were destroying our environment, and so many people were suffering, and just one war after another was going on. I, I just could not make sense of that, and so I really, uh, as I discovered at that time that I was uh, inheriting some money from my grandparents. Uh, not a tremendous amount, but an, enough uh, that if I managed it carefully, I could choose what I wanted to do with my daily life. And it was like winning the lottery at a, an early age. I felt very blessed and also a big responsibility to not spend my life complaining about my job <laughs> uh, because I could do what I wanted. So I, uh, as I looked around, I had been a filmmaker in college, and I, I loved, I've always loved film. But I made enough films to realize, uh, these were short films, to realize that I had nothing to say at that point that was worth all of the money and time and technology and so forth uh, that it takes to create a feature film. So instead, I dedicated myself to, to exploring this question of what is in the way uh, of our thriving. And I told my friends at that time, if I find uh, a meaningful answer to that and a sense of the way out, then I'll make the, my next film. And... I thought it would take a few years. Uh, it actually took 41 years before the coherence was there, uh, and finally this film is out. 
you know, coming from the privileged background that you did, um, it's heartening and uh, somewhat surprising that you turned to this kind of social commitment. Why do you think that happened? Well, it's an excellent question. I, I, I don't know, and I think that there are a number of factors that were involved that I am aware of. First of all, I, I was blessed with amazing parents. My mother was probably the most unconditionally loving person that I ever met until I met Kimberly. Uh, so growing up with her, I thought everybody's mom was like that and found out later on that's uh, far from the truth. Uh, and my dad was not such a, a heartfelt guy, but he was known in his community for absolute integrity. And growing up with those two role models just supported me in questioning things that a lot of people around me were just taking for granted. And then I think, you know, on more of a, of a spiritual consciousness level, um, I have been asking these questions since I was a very small child, and I, I can't, I've been telling my friends recently, I can't remember the time in my, in my life since I was a, a very small kid that I wasn't being driven by the quest that the movie portrays until the film was finally out. And now I feel a sense of, of having accomplished what I came for in a, le in a way that I didn't know if it was possible. Um, but I, so I think in a, in a cosmic sense, um, this is what I came here for this lifetime, was to find a certain level of uh, truth and convey it to my fellow human beings uh, in, uh, in service to protecting this absolutely rare and glorious planet that we get to live on and which is really in peril. It's interesting. You start with some achingly beautiful pictures of the planet, and, and to think that that is all in peril is devastating. Why was energy your starting point, and what is the relevance of the Taurus to the story? Well, I think the reason probably that, I, that energy was my first really all-consuming uh, calling was that uh, as I... Uh, portray in the film. When I was in elementary school, this was during the days of duck and cover when we had these drills where this air raid siren would go off and, the, the, and we would all jump under our desks and put our arms over our heads. And I remember sitting under my desk just shaking in fear. And, you know, at the, at the same time, intellectually, I knew that it wasn't real. I was being told that it could be at any moment. And being under that desk with my arms over my head, I was very clear, even at a very young age, that was not going to handle a nuclear detonation. <laughs> so if that was the best the adults had to offer, I, I needed to do some thinking on my own. So I, I started deeply questioning then, and it was just a few years later that I was riding on the school bus that I also portray in the film, looking out the window, and uh, the light was blinking through the trees, and I think it helped kind of put me in a state of reverie, and suddenly I was having this full-on vision of this whirlpool vortex pattern that became an atom, and then it became a solar system, and then it became actually uh, the, the field around my body or, or any human's body. And I felt like uh, really deeply that I was being given the gift of seeing something, which I didn't understand really at all then. It was very beautiful to me and compelling. And I had the question, I was left with the question, is there 
in fact, a fundamental energy pattern in the universe. But I didn't have the answers, and I started going up to the physics lab after sports practice uh, every day and just building things. I, I, <laughs> I chuckled when I saw the, the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and all these people were building this, uh, this mountain in Arizona out of mashed potatoes and everything, because that's pretty much what I was doing for quite a while, just following my inner guidance, but with no intellectual understanding, really, of, of what I was after. And then ultimately, um, it turned out that what I was building, when I finally built what I needed to build, it was a, it was a floating circle of light uh, that I built out of a, a, uh, a, a light generator and then uh, blocks of glass that would refract light. And I kept bending these blocks of, of glass until it bent the light all the way around in a full circle and like an Ouroboros with a snake eating its tail, the light came in on itself. And once I finally got that built, there was satisfaction is like, okay, that's what I needed to make. And people came into the lab and said, well, that looks nice, but what is it? I said, I really don't know, but that's what I needed to see. So now, years later, I can look back and realize, oh, that was the Taurus. I, w I was given an inner vision of this pattern that mathematicians call the Taurus. And the key to the Taurus is it's the only pattern in the universe that sustains itself in a continuous medium. Mm -hmm. So if our evolutionary imperative is to learn how to build sustainable systems, whether they're economic, energy, communications, uh, whatever kind of system, um, if it's our job to learn how to line up our systems with what nature does to sustain in a healthy way, then as far as I can see, the Taurus is in fact the universal template for us to follow, and we're being shown it at every level. It's just that we're not being taught it in school or we're not being taught by our uh, parents and teachers how to recognize it. So that's one of the things I wanted to do in the film was portray this fundamental energy pattern uh, in, all sort, in, in all its glory so that we can start to recognize it and then learn to model our systems after it to access, for instance, energy in a clean, safe, healthy way. Because mm -hmm. it's a generative pattern instead of a destructive pattern. Exactly. It, it, it's a self-creating uh, pattern ongoingly. Mm -hmm. So it's really like every atom in your body, every cell in your body, your body itself, as well as the planet that we live on, the solar system, the, sol you know, the sun that we get our energy from, the, uh, all of these systems are surrounded by a usually invisible toroidal vortex uh, that, that distinguishes the energy of the system from the energy of its surroundings. It's all connected, and yet each system can be distinct, like a whirlpool in a continuous stream of water. So let's get back to the relevance of this toroid to energy. You talk about UFO technologies and information from crop circles kind of reiterating this pattern. What can... and... and its connection to free energy technologies. What convinced you that free energy solutions exist and are practical? Well, I had been uh, studying um, nature's geometry, how nature builds the material world, really how spirit manifests into, into matter for 30 years. Uh, and I didn't even know why, but I knew that I loved doing it and that I needed to do it. And then those studies led to uh, relating to many other scientists uh, from all over the world, particularly in 
what we called the Sequoia Symposium, a think tank that a, a number of us organized that went on for a number of years. And we were looking to see whether or not this torus and then the, the structural pattern that comes out of how different toruses organize together, uh, what Bucky Fuller called the vector equilibrium, we were looking to see whether or not <clears throat> this, these two patterns were fundamental at every level. So we had physicists at the smallest level and then chemists at the next level and then biologists at the next level and psychologists and astronomers as the, the scale of scientific inquiry uh, increases. And they all ended up verifying that these two patterns really are fundamental uh, at every scale. But during those conferences, I ran into some scientists who were also inventors or new inventors who were developing alternative uh, energy technologies that I had never heard of. I had heard about Nikola Tesla and that he was on to something, but I had never really studied him. And so I started working with some of these scientists, both theoretically and, and ultimately uh, ended up cooperating with some of them in their labs and, and uh, helping some of them with funding and so forth. And uh, I built up trust with them over a decade. and was invited into some private laboratories where they were building these free energy technologies. And both my wife, Kimberly, and I got to see some of these things operating. And it just you know, moved us to tears to actually be in the presence of a device that was not plugged into anything and, uh, and yet was whirring with energy. And for instance, in one of them, when you would plug in a hairdryer or a, uh, a power saw or a drill, or the more devices you would plug in, the more energy it would provide, which is exactly the opposite of our, our traditional system. So it was thrilling to us to see that we do not have any good reason to be fighting over oil or polluting our skies or making people sick with, with asthma and you know, paying all this money for uh, energy from you know, fossil fuels and so forth. The technology already exists in multiple labs uh, all over the world. And that's, that was the great news. What's unfortunate is that I, we talk about in the film and the website is that virtually every one of the labs that I was uh, associated with has been uh, raided and shut down by various uh, government uh, forces. Um, and the inventors gag ordered, I mean, literally given a document, which we have on the website, um, which tells them that they need to stop with their inventions. They need to not... Uh, not talk with anybody else about their inventions, uh, and really under threat of imprisonment if they continue. And this is all supposedly under the guise of national security. But when we're fighting wars over oil, I would say that having actually clean, safe energy available to everyone would be have quite the opposite effect on our, our national security. I, I, I build the case in the, in the film that I think it's much more political and financial interest that want to control people's lives through controlling energy as well as money and food and, and so forth that, um, that has us in a condition where the world is being deprived of this new understanding. Yeah, you had a great quote from Kissinger. You said, who controls the food supply controls the people, who controls the energy can control continents, and who controls the money supply can control the world. So, yeah, it's, chill, it's chilling to realize that that's actually a strategy that has been being implemented for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, chilling is, is just too weak a term for it. <laughs> and Miriam, you asked about the connection to 
uh, the UFOs in crop circles, and that was an even bigger surprise to me. To Once I saw the implications of the Taurus and its uh, application for energy access, you know, I became really curious as to, you know, are, are some of us now just the first ones to be understanding this just absolutely cosmic insight? And it turned out that, as I expected, that, you know, not at all. It turns out that this understanding of the Taurus and the vector equilibrium has been encoded by various cultures, through the Egyptian, the Mayan, Chinese, uh, Hebrew cultures for literally millennia. Uh, so it raised the question, um, how did they know about this thousands of years ago so they could encode it very specifically, oftentimes with like five or six layers of error correction that a, a coding expert would recognize? How did they know about this thousands of years ago? And there, there are a couple of, only two explanations I can come up with. Uh, one is that there were mystics who were accessing, you know, cosmic consciousness, the Akashic Records, whatever you want to call it, and just downloading this information a long time ago. And that may, some of that may have been going on. Uh, and an even more plausible explanation, and possibly an additional one, is that we have been being visited for a long time, for thousands of years, by extraterrestrial civilizations who could be, you know, a million or more years ahead of us. Uh, they would probably need to be if they're actually visiting here from other solar systems, much less uh, other galaxies. And that when they came to visit, they actually left some sort of record of uh, the understanding of how energy works and how they could get here. And it turns out that many of these cultures have, you know, legends and carvings and stories and so forth about these so-called sun gods coming out of the sky in these uh, burning balls of light and actually coming down and, and uh, teaching this awareness. Mm-hmm. So that, that was another mind blower for me. And then when I, when I saw the crop circles, uh, you know, coming in for the last, you know, 10, 12 years, um, at first uh, I was intrigued by them. But, I, you know, I heard the stories about, well, it's actually just some, you know, Doug and Dave and, and, and <laughs> at night, you know, they, they get their beer at the pub in England, and then they go out with some boards and, and ropes, and they go out and actually make these things. And I actually bought into that at first. And then as they started coming in in the hundreds and then thousands, I thought, whoa, you know, Doug and Dave are not only really busy, they're <laughs> really good because they're outlining patterns in exquisite detail um, that are exactly the same deep geometric understandings that I've come to after 30 years of study. So as I looked into it uh, more realistically then, uh, the, one of the stories that makes sense for the ones that are real, I'm sure that there are a lot of them are being made by people, but there, there are a ton of them that are absolutely unexplainable, you know, no footprints and just electromagnetic anomalies and so forth. But the intriguing thing to me is that hundreds of them specifically describe the subtleties of how energy works in the universe in a way that our traditional physics does not yet. And I think what's going on is that there are more advanced intelligences than we are who are trying to coach us on how not to destroy ourselves, how to access energy in a clean, safe way that would allow us to have a healthy planet. And if we voyage off of this planet, which obviously we're starting to, that we're not uh, taking nuclear waste and nuclear power and all these destructive mm-hmm. things with us. Foster, we were talking about the uh, motivation behind the suppression of these technologies. 
and uh, what is behind the oil-based economy. And tell us how it's expressed today in the world. Well, when I was uh, following the, the money to try to figure out who wouldn't want clean, safe energy available to everyone on the planet, uh, it traced back to the powers that control energy, that specifically oil, but also coal, natural gas, and so forth as well. And it turned out that it was, you know, it's major corporations, but even the major corporations um, are controlled by a relatively small number of uh, families and financial interests. And uh, then I looked into uh, food. And when I followed the money on agriculture, it turned out that, uh, that it was the Rockefellers again, who you know, also control oil, it was the Rockefellers again who moved us from a natural organic food base to an oil-based uh, agricultural system where we're so dependent on uh, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, and so forth to grow our food in this really unnatural monoculture setting where you see one crop for as far as the eye can see with all other plants taken out uh, and oftentimes just plastic over all of the soil and everything. It turns out when you do that, the natural uh, bugs and birds and, and rodents and so forth who would keep the ecology and balance are taken away also. Um, so then you need all of these artificial chemicals. Uh, and then, then the next step was to bring in the GMO modification so that farmers couldn't even you know, uh, use the natural reproduction of their own seeds. And uh, it just it didn't make any sense to me. So I followed the money there, too, and it turns out to go back to the same money power. So then I started looking into all 12 of we, what we call the, the sectors of, of human endeavor. And to make a long story short, you follow any of them. You follow the, uh, the arts, you follow science, you follow uh, justice, uh, uh, media, etc. And you'll find the same uh, money powers, a small group really controlling all of them. And it turns out that the way they control all of them is by controlling money itself. And that was really the big realization for me that the, these people aren't any you know, smarter or any better than the rest of us. They just uh, were in on a scam that really started uh, 400 years ago with the central banking system uh, in England and the fractional reserve system that it allows a few people to just make up money, essentially, whenever they want. And uh, imagine if you were playing a Monopoly with a, a group, but one person got to make up money whenever he wants. Obviously, he's going to buy everybody out you know, win the game very soon to the detriment of everyone else. And it turns out that that's what's been happening in the world. So once I realized uh, that, it actually started making sense to me that, uh, that a small group of people could, con could at least try to take over the lives of uh, a vast number of people, if not the entire planet, as long as they could keep that scam secret mm -hmm. and pay people to, to do their bidding. So that's the way it's playing out right now. And unfortunately, the agenda is very close to completion. And I see the global financial collapse not as some incompetent accident, uh, but as actually a very carefully and shrewdly planned out agenda to collapse the world economies and in its place um, create a one-world government under the auspices of these 
primarily the international central banking family with a one-world currency, one-world uh, army, and, and so forth, a one-world tax to support uh, where everybody in the world pays into the World Bank to pay these uh, international bankers to control all of our lives. So it's really a, a horrific scene that we're very close to. That's, once again, that's the bad news. <laughs> the good news is that the world is waking up, especially through the Internet. This information is becoming vastly available now, and through movements like the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement and now with, the, with Anonymous protecting uh, truth and free speech all, all over the place, there is just a, a global emergence of integrity uh, and a willingness to stand up and say, you know, we may not understand thoroughly how we're being screwed or exactly what we can do about it, but we're not going to take it anymore, and we're going to have the conversations that are needed to really provide uh, a whole new approach to how we can relate to each other in such a way that everybody on the planet can have the opportunity to thrive. Yeah, I was I was so impressed with the this group of enlightened beings and spokespeople that you collected in the film as well. I mean, these are these are our top drawer people like uh, Dwayne Elgin and Nassim Haramein and Brian O'Leary, Deepak Chopra, Catherine Austin Fitz. She was amazing, by the way. Yeah. I mean, just just to hear that she was under attack for ten years and still managed to clear her name. Yeah, she's one of the most inspiring people in my life because I wouldn't wish on anyone what she went through, and yet she came out with her, with her spirit and her sense of humor completely intact and still completely uh, dedicated to bringing a just economic system uh, to the world. If anybody's interested in following her work, work just look on solari.com, S-O-L-A-R-I.com. She has a, a regular uh, program and lots of wonderful information continually available. Uh, just, just for for our readers, um, she was the whistleblower. Uh, t- tell them about that. Well, she was the uh, deputy secretary of housing and urban development under George Bush Sr. And uh, she, you know, she was a brilliant financial um, wizard. In her own career, uh, she was offered a job on the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve, which fortunately she turned down, but she was offered this very high position. And when she got into the position, she said, okay, well, uh, let me see the financials. And they told her, well, you know, you don't actually get to see the financials. On, And she said, listen, I have fiduciary responsibility for the housing for the entire country, and you're not going to show me the numbers? What's going on here? So they gradually started to dribble her a, a, a few numbers. And she started putting them together and realizing that just as an example, there was an average of $9 million a day going missing, not just badly spent, actually missing in every major city in the country on a daily basis. So she started tracking this, hired a bunch of young computer wizards, and they created a program called Community Wizard, which would follow the flows of money all over the country. Well, that's the last thing in the world the powers that be want people to have access to, is actually seeing you know, how, where money comes from, how it gets laundered, how it gets, uh, you know, taken out covertly and, and moved around and so forth. And so that's when they uh, started cracking down on her. And she had a very successful financial uh, company called Hamilton Securities. And they came in and, you know, under, uh, they just made up fallacious claims and came in and uh, raided her company and basically uh, put her uh, through 
a 10-year court trial, which broke her financially. She ended up being acquitted of everything at the end. But meanwhile, uh, she had no money left. It had cost her $250 million to just to, to fight for, for her own justice. Um, and so she tells this moving story of really the, the people who were supporting her were the people that she had shared her own bounty with, her own gifts uh, over the years. So she's just uh, one of those troopers out there who's just willing to stand up for the truth, whatever uh, the risks. And we dedicate the movie to people like that. And this is the the standard that you are holding high with your movie. And I I believe that this is going to just pull people in from from every sector of society to wake up and realize the truth behind what's happening. What do you think is the end game? What what do people what do the powers that be want to achieve out of of grinding us into the dust? Well, I think that they want to create uh, a world where they feel as safe as possible. And I think that, as I mentioned in the movie, I think that these are very damaged and wounded people. I feel tremendous compassion for the pain and fear that they must live in, thinking that they actually can only get safety by, uh, by hoarding resources and controlling everyone else's life. And so I think that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to control money, uh, food, media, um, and then surveil everyone and have a, a police state control system um, and then reduce the population by about 80% to a, a manageable group of people who can actually serve as their serfs. It's a very kind of old-fashioned feudal system where you have kind of an elite royalty served by people who are basically their debt slaves. And, uh, and I think it's fundamentally just a means to try to, um, to limit their own fear, because I think, they, and I've, I've read a lot of the biographies of, of a lot of these people, and, and in virtually every case, they were highly controlled and often abused as, as children, and basically indoctrinated into a worldview where, you know, it's a big bad jungle out there, and either there's two types of people, those who are controlled and those who control them, which do you want to be? Mm-hmm. And if, if people sell out their own integrity and, and human sensitivity and compassion to that agenda, then they're actually rewarded tremendously in our current political and economic system. So they rise very rapidly because their allegiance is to, you know, whatever works to gain power rather than actual truth and, and uh, compassion and justice and that sort of thing. So go ahead. I, I was just going to comment. There was something extremely chilling on the news this morning. It was about a virus that's been created in laboratories that has the potential to wipe out half of the world population. And uh, it's so virulent that the government is trying to close the barn door and suppress the, publica- the sci- publication in the scientific journals. And, of course, the scientists are saying that it's already out there. But what is even more chilling is that this is uh, funded, this is research funded by the government, right? So the government is funding research on uh, genetically modified viruses that can kill vast populations. Is that connecting some dots? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, And we go into this some on the website in the health section. Uh, It's one of the things we try to do on the website is offer people two new lenses 
to look at reality through. One is the Taurus, looking at, at basically the science and nature and so forth in terms of a, the understanding of the, the fundamental nature of the Taurus. But the other is what we call the global domination agenda. And once you entertain the notion that there's a small cartel of people who are, uh, who are trying to gain this global control, then if you, if you put on those glasses, when you look at something like a government uh, creating uh, these lethal viruses that could wipe out billions of, of people very quickly, on the one hand, it could be justified as, well, you know, some other enemy, some terrorist might use uh, bio-warfare against us, so we need to be ready to combat it and so forth. Uh, and there may be some truth to that some people are thinking that way, but if you put on this other lens and realize that the, the, the would-be controlling elite, they scoff at the notion of nation-states. They've known for a long time that basically they, the world is being run by major international corporations and the bankers who fund them. Uh, so when these, these uh, weaponized bacteria and so forth are being grown by a quote-unquote government, like the U.S. government, it's useful to step back and see, let's see, how would this serve the global agenda? Because even our governments and our economic systems and our workers and so forth, I believe, are being basically used to create this global agenda. And if part of the global agenda is to depopulate most of the people on the planet fairly quickly, then it makes a lot of sense that they would use taxpayer money to uh, create these bioweapons, and, uh, and then actually, in some cases, uh, leak them out. Uh, if, you, if you trace back what was behind the H1N1, the swine flu, and uh, if you Google Baxter Labs and, and trace back really where those, the actual uh, components of that virus were uh, created, uh, you'll see once again that, that the only way that virus, um, I mean, that uh, flu virus, could have been created was by human beings, and you can actually trace it back to where it was most likely created. It actually looks like it's the same with AIDS. And there's a, a, a Dr. Leonard Horowitz, a Harvard-trained yeah. doctor, uh, who has uh, laid out the history of a lot of these things and very well documented. And the more, again, as bad a news as it is to have to consider these possibilities, if, we're, if we open our eyes and realize that some people do want to do a lot of us harm, then we can wake up and take the actions that will obsolete the destructive uh, agenda of a very few. And what strategies do you recommend for reclaiming our lives and our future? Well, I think that's the, that's the most wonderful question of all. And uh, we spend a, a, quite a bit of, uh, of time and space on, the, the, uh, on our website going into solutions strategies. And if, when people go to visit the, the site, there are success stories that uh, are inspiring from where people are being successful in various endeavors all over the world. And then there are large-scale solution strategies, like getting rid of the Federal Reserve and cutting the military uh, budget in half and things like that, which obviously no individual can go out and do. But there are ways that you can participate with large groups who are motivating to educate and, and activate on that. But what I most recommend to people to get started is go to the What Can I Do section uh, of our website where we offer your a website. Sorry, your website is thrivemovement.com, right? Yes, thank you. And 
there's a section on there uh, under what can I do, under the solution section, where we recommend a top ten most highly recommended action. And the, the first one is simply to get as informed as you can. And people are, are just doing that by the millions uh, um, all over the world now. And a, a lot of them using Thrive to, to, to do that and to share with their friends. It's a lot easier to give somebody a DVD and says, if this interests you, let's, t let's talk, mm -hmm. than to try to introduce some of these topics in a, in a social setting where you might sound a little crazy. <laughs> um, but then, so get informed, speak up, and then connect with others, particularly in your local communities or by the, the sectors of your, uh, your strongest passion. Uh, an easy one to do is to bank locally. Take your money out of what Catherine calls the tapeworm banks that are causing so much destruction uh, and getting inappropriately bailed out and so forth. And put it in your local banks and credit unions where it needs to stay in your community and actually build the financial strength of uh, your local neighborhood. Um, another is to join the movement, join a, a movement, there are a number of them, to audit and end the Federal Reserve. Whatever you can do to keep the Internet fair and open, and there are a number of organizations that you'll find uh, listed that are, are doing a good job of that, because the, the Internet is our most powerful way not only to get informed about what's really going on that the corporate media is not going to tell you about, but also to organize with one another in a very efficient manner. Another, yes. is, another is to support organic, non-GMO farming. And as, as long as we are having a political system, there are things that you can do to require election and campaign finance reform to take, you know, get rid of corporate personhood, take corporate money out of uh, elections, have paper ballots so that the, the, the ballots can't be rigged electronically. And then, uh, you know, you can support free energy. There, there, you can go on our website to the critical mass actions and sign up to, uh, to take actions when there are enough people, and there are a lot of people signing up already, who want to either take place in mass protests or to, uh, to get together and provide the science and, and to provide the funding to support these inventors in getting this stuff out into the world. And that, that's really the last one that I'll, I'll mention is this whole notion of critical mass action. We've got a number of possibilities listed on the website. And uh, after we had created the website, we were thrilled to see you know, the Occupy movement uh, use a very similar. And obviously, they're taking action in a huge mass. The further strategy that we're recommending on the website is certain actions which aren't going to be very powerful. If, you know, if a dozen people show up with signs on the steps of the Federal Reserve, you probably won't even get any press. But if you wait till you know, half a million people have signed up, and then they all show up at all of their local Federal Reserves, you know, with the cameras and so forth, then you're going to uh, gonna get leveraged uh, media attention in a way that is not going to be as powerful as if we just do it on our own. So that's just a starter group of things that you can do that don't take a lot of time and money where just changing your lifestyle and, and making different choices can have you be part of a, a, literally the first global uh, movement to provide a world where all can thrive. I think that the first one is the most important. You have to educate and inform yourself. And it, it is so important. I mean, in this little interview, we can't go into the details, but why is GMO farming so uh, destructive? Uh, inform yourself. There's a lot of information in the CD. There's more information, I'm sure, on your website. And you point out 
that there are about a million organizations around the world working in one facet or another of this awakening. Yes, Paul Hawken uh, was the one who shared that information with me, and that was a few years ago when I interviewed him. It's actually, he says now it's closer to 2 million organizations worldwide who are working for uh, peace and uh, justice and environmental sustainability, and it's a, a uh, it's a perfect example of a self-creating. You know, it, it's a leaderless movement where uh, there's no particular centralized infrastructure infrastructure that's going to control all these organizations, and therefore they can't be taken down by uh, by diminishing one centralized control. Mm. It really is the the, the spontaneous self-creating awareness of our whole human population. It's the immune system kicking in and needing to, to find out what is it that can create a sustainable civilization now that we have the technologies to actually uh, you know, destroy life as we know it on the planet. So I, I'm happy to say that, that despite all of the horrific stuff I've learned in my research, I'm actually more confident, more optimistic about our ability to turn this around, actually in a relatively short amount of time, than I have ever been uh, in the last 15 years since I've been really looking closely into this because people are becoming so educated, so willing to stand up, and the technologies e exist for linking people together in really effective action worldwide. And the other thing that you pointed out is that it's not the 90% or the 99%. We're actually talking about one million people to every one of the establishment. So we do have the numbers on our side. Yes, it, it, it's important for people when they talk. It's easy to talk about the 99% and the 1%, but it's, it's really critical to go deeper into the distinction of, you know, a person doesn't become destructive because they've been successful earning money. You know, if you look what an Oprah or a Steve Jobs or somebody like that has done for people's lives, it's important to distinguish that it's actually a much smaller percentage. It's like 0.0001% of people who are actually uh, consciously creating a destructive agenda that at, the, uh, at the, the expense of most of the people on the planet. And as we expose that, uh, it doesn't do any good that you want to hate them or destroy them or anything like that, but we need to obsolete them from positions of power and bring in new ways of thinking that are actually based on integrity and the individual rights of, of absolutely every person on the planet. Here, here. Well, my goodness, we've been speaking with Foster Gamble, the filmmaker, creator behind Thrive the Movie. Educate yourselves. Go to his website, thrivemovement.com. And I want to thank you so much for being with us, Foster. You're welcome, Miriam. It's a pleasure, and congratulations on the wonderful work that you're doing and with true independent media tying together such critical uh, topics at a time that that it's so needed, and it, it just helps all of us to get uh, much better informed through the type of, of program that you're doing. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. And listeners, I hope you'll join us next week on New Consciousness Review, when my guest will be singer and sound healer, Alea Dow. We'll be talking about her CD, Awaken. And now we're going to conclude today's show with our track of the week from members of the Positive Music Association. With music styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, they all have positive messages designed to uplift, heal, or enlighten. 
This week we're featuring a song by Derek Jordan called Song of the Forest. After the song, I'll tell you where you can find out more about Derek's music and more about the PMA. Enjoy the music. Oh. 
wasn't that beautiful. That was called Song of the Forest by Derek Jordan from Putney, Vermont. Derek is one of the PMA's growing group of musicians who are using music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. You can find out more about Derek's music at DerekJordan.com. That's D-E-R-R-I-K-J-O-R-D-A-N.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to PositiveMusicAssociation.com. Well, if you enjoyed our show, I hope you'll consider joining our free community of readers and authors at ncreview.com. If you have any comments on the show, I would love to hear from you. Just send me an email to miriam at ncreview.com or leave a message on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash ncreview. And don't forget to tell your friends. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.